Psalm 112, 1 through 10. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Thank you for coming out to church today. Uh, those of you that are joining us online, it's great to have you with us. Um, as, as you know, this, throughout this series, we've titled it the, the Anatomy of the Soul, after what John Calvin uh, titled his work in the, in the Psalms. And what, what we're trying to do is to help you become more aware of the different tensions in our society when it comes to how we are to interact or not interact with our emotions. Um, one side of it is basically of this, the tension in our culture is basically saying, well, your emotions are who you really are. And so if you're not in touch with your emotions, if they're not the leading faculty of your life, then you're going to kind of lose yourself. Uh, on the entire end of, other end of the spectrum, there is a position in our society that is more of the stoic-like uh, disposition that basically says, your emotions are really the enemy of who you really are, and they really have to be avoided. Now, when you look at the, the book of Psalms, the way it deals with who we are emotionally is very interesting because it, it explains to us a way that you can live in relation to your emotion without it overtaking you one way or the other. And so it's a very interesting tension that emerges throughout the Psalms. And so We've looked at various psalms. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 112 um, that really, I, I think, perfectly establishes something that we find ourselves in the middle of it. Um, as we enter into this holiday season, it's, it's typically filled with this whole gambit of emotion. Most of it, I think we would say, is positive, but not all of it is positive. It seems like we're continually bumping up against expectations that are seldom met. It doesn't matter if it perhaps was a bonus that's small or not given at all. Uh, oftentimes it's relational type of interaction that we expect a, a different type of kindness, a different kind of generosity um, that would come from that kind of a, a setting. But When you think about it, where does it come from? Where does your kindness and generosity come from? Does it just naturally kind of come in with the season and we just kind of grasp on to some vestige of it that would cause us to be more kind and more generous during this season than any other time of the season? 
Or is there some other way that it's supposed to be cultivated? You see, I, I, I think most of us would hope, I, I, I know some of you, that you have practices when you go to restaurants, you tip more in the holidays than you would the rest of the, the, rest of the year. And so there tends to be a general disposition that we, we try to be more kind, we try to be more generous with people around us, but what is really the base of that? And I, I, I think this psalm is a very interesting psalm because it, it, it touches upon something, whether you know it or not, every human, every religion known to humankind believes in some, some kind of angle of what we would call as Christians the golden rule. It's known in a lot of secular circles as the rule of reciprocity. You treat others the way you would want them to treat you, kind of like a boomerang. But there still has to be something underneath this. Because as Christians, is it enough for you to be kind until the 1st of January? And then you kind of go back to your old screwed self. You see, I, I don't know that we have that good of a handle on this as I think we oftentimes believe we do. Now, in general, I think most of us that consider ourselves Christians would agree with the teaching of Jesus that Paul cited in Acts 20 and verse 35, where Jesus just said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I think most of us would agree with that. But what's interesting is that it seems as if that belief gets kind of compartmentalized, especially among Christians. Um, I, I think it's very common in Christian circles for us to be more kind to one another than we would be to strangers. And so we, we seem to have not only a, a, an understanding of this that isn't quite as clear as we think we, we do, but we have an application of it that is limited um, very, very well. It's compartmentalized. Um, when it comes to kindness and generosity, it... It, it, it seems that our culture doesn't see Christianity as being kind and generous anymore. In fact, the research conducted by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyon shows that 75, excuse me, 70% of non-Christian Americans between the ages of, of 19 and 29, they, they perceive Christians as being insensitive to others. And so at the very origin of where we would consider kindness and generosity, they're saying you're not even aware anymore. And so there, there's this very interesting perspective of, of these things that isn't at all consistent with what traditionally, with the way we would think of it. Now, this cultural trend it can't be limited to Christian circles, though. In other words, there's a lot of psychological research that's beginning to show that our overall perception culturally of kindness and generosity has, has actually come to a point that we see it as a weakness. We see it as a kind of vulnerability. And some of this research is, re is very, very interesting. Now, Maria Popova wrote this about kindness in a recent article. She said, although kindness, although kindness is the foundation of all spiritual traditions, at some point in recent hi history, Kindness became little more than an abstract aspiration. Its concrete practical applications, uh, a hazardous and vulnerable making behavior to be avoided. We need only to look at the internet's outraged culture for evidence. 
or the rise of cynicism as our flawed self-defense mechanism against the perceived perils of kindness. We come to see the emotional, we've come to see the emotional porousness that kindness requires as a dangerous crack in the armor of the independent self, an exploitable outward vulnerability, too high a cost to pay for the warm inward balm of the benevolence for which we long in the deepest part of ourselves. Kindness has become our forbidden pleasure. That is a, that is a very stinging type of description about how we're increasingly seeing this movement away from kindness and generosity to where we actually believe it, it's a sign of weakness. It leaves us vulnerable, leaves us open. That description of the porousness, of the emotional porousness that's required for kindness and generosity, um, it's not worth the price for most of us. Um, I think among many other things, Psalm 112 speaks directly to the issues of kindness and generosity. Um, it was composed as an, what they call an acrostic poem that consisted of 22 lines. There was 22 characters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each line started with the successive letter of the alphabet. Therefore, it was considered or classified what they considered a wisdom psalm. Now, what that means is that it, it has a very pointed message. It has a very succinct rhythm to it when it was, sang, when it was sung, and it spoke very sharply like the Proverbs, in a way that was intended to be very piercing, very piercing. And the, the basic instruction of the context is that it's showing you the rewards of living a life of obedience to God. And in contrast to that, those who fail to obey God's laws are considered to be the wicked in verse 10, and they're doomed to disappear. Very interesting flow and structure of the psalm. Now, the emphasis on a life that is lived obediently before the Lord has caused writers to give this psalm a number of very interesting titles over the years. And some of those titles include The Happiness of a Good Person, uh, In Praise of the Virtuous, The Blessings of the Just Man, The Good Fortune of an Honorable Man, and that overall context provides a very interesting perspective on kindness and generosity because it doesn't appear in isolation. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Kindness and generosity in this psalm appear strategically alongside the other fruits of a righteous life. Now, that in and of itself should kind of provoke some of our curiosity. Why would someone actually speak so clearly about kindness and generosity but almost bury it? amongst all these other things. Now, I think there's two aspects of this psalm that, that have the potential to radically change our perspective of kindness and generosity. And the first is that it provides us with a broader description of kindness and generosity than most of us are accustomed to, even as Christians. And so that's the first benefit. The second benefit is that we're given a description of kindness and genero a generous life that is supported or sustained across the whole spectrum of our life. In other words, this, this destroys or deconstructs what some of you might be thinking about this. You can't be kind and generous only. It's not something that you can just merely focus on. 
the psalm shows it to be emerging like a crop with a whole bunch of plants around it. And I, I, I think this challenges some of our emotional disposition towards kindness and generosity, especially in this holiday season. And so I, I, I want us to start with this a consideration of a broader description of kindness and generosity. Uh, we, we see it in verses 5 and verse 9, and they describe the life of a person that's characterized by these two, two aspects of life. Uh, kindness and generosity. And there's three characteristics that emerge in those verses that, that are, I think, particularly helpful because they stretch our normal anticipation of this. The, the first is that he describes this person who deals generously and lends. Now, this first one is a particularly interesting description because it's talking about your business practice. It's not talking about how you treat the people with the cardboard signs at, at uh, any major intersection. I couldn't think of a single one for some reason. I, there wasn't a single one. Never mind. Um, but, and so this first description is a description of a person that deals generously and lends. And particularly the second descriptive moves it into this practice of business. And it's a person who cons is concerned about the well-being -be the wellness of life of a person that you do business with as, as opposed to the scrupulous exacting of a, of, a, of a situation that might produce hardship for that person. Very interesting description in this first one. The second one is conducts his affairs with justice. This is describing a person who is willing to uphold what is right and equitable in any, any given situation as opposed to the person who's working an angle to take advantage of another person. And so both of these, I think, are pretty much off the radar of what we would consider to be kindness and generosity, particularly during the holiday season. Now, the third one is the one that you probably most relate to. And it says that it's this, this person distributed freely. He's given to the poor. And this gives us a glimpse of how this particular individual interacts with the underprivileged, the people that are in lower status economically or socially. And there's a kindness or generosity there. But the interesting thing about this is that it's blowing it open to the point that you would have to say that you could be generous there and be a grouch in the rest of your life. And I think that we actually have to own that. I think the whole compartmentalization thing has to be admitted because we might see that you're generous in maybe one or two of these areas, but you're not kind or generous in the least in the way that you interact or do business with people. In fact, if, if you went back to former partnerships that you've done, um, maybe it, it was more in an academic setting where you were expected to carry a certain responsibility or a load on behalf of the team that was, was tasked with a certain project. Did you pull your weight? You see, that's not quite the same as giving to the long underwear fund that we're, we're doing. See, you can write a check to the long underwear fund and, and be the absolute cancer of the teams that you're a part of. And what this broader description does is push it into a perspective of life that inclu includes your business practices. And I, I think that that's very interesting indeed because 
it causes you to admit that I could be generous in one area and, and actually maybe even in the underprivileged part of it, that I always tend to, to give to people that are poor. I always tend to support the shelters and around me and stuff. But my partiality is condemned in every other facet of my life because everybody has a fair warning when they do business with me. You see, that's what he's getting at. And so the broader description of this, I think, is, is remarkably helpful because it's showing that this, this, these characteristics of kindness and generosity, they don't grow in one part of your, of your field. They're described across the whole spectrum. Now, this brings us to the second point, the sustainable source of kindness and generosity. And there's a couple of different points here that I, I think are worthy of our consideration. In verse 1, the psalm opens up with a description of a life that's characterized by, quote, the man who fears the Lord, unquote, and then again, who greatly delights in his commandments, being caused to prosper. And so, like many of the other psalms, this is taking the, the qualities or the characteristic of a life that's living in a, in a very prospered or blessed way, which is kind of a, a term that's deflected in our culture. But it, that is contrasted against a person that's described to be wicked in verse, in verse 10. But interestingly, this person that's described in verse 10 is a person that's angry as he observes this other life. And so no, not only are they being held in juxtaposition to one another, they're being held in a very precarious tension because this wicked person is viewing the prosperity of this other person's life. And it, it says that it's vexing him. He's angry. And that, that's a form of vexation. When it refers to this idea of melting away, it's a very curious description because it's referring to that inward poison or bitterness that can get so deep inside us, we don't even, it, it just like comes out in various conversations and interactions with people, whether we're on the phone or perhaps even drafting an email, and it just comes out like a fire-breathing dragon, and it's, it's something going on in the interior life that's occurring as this person watches this other person's life, and it just destroys him. He can't hardly stand the sight of it. And so that's a very interesting tension that is created in verse 1 and 10 in the outermost parts of the psalm. But when you begin to look in verses 2 to 4 and verses 6 to 8, they describe five characteristics of a life that's lived in obedience to God's law. He tells you how you should live. He tells you how you ought to interact with your spouse, your obligations to your children, how you should live in regard to your neighbors. There's remarkable description comes into our lives like it's almost as if you're hearing the voice of God saying, here's the way my people live. And he's showing five blossoms that kind of come on that organism in these verses. And the first one is, is what you see in verse 2 and its legacy. Now, I, I, it was very interesting to me to work through this because uh, many of you know I was, I, I, I was in school again this year from, it's incurable, I think. I, people keep asking me, when are you going to quit that? And I was like, I, I just, I, I don't know. Um, but I, from June to, from uh, January to June, I was, I was in school, and it, it, it was definitely a non 
Christian organization that I was in, engaged with. And, and I could not believe how consistent these things were when it came to just like normal executive coaching. These are the things that people cherish, these characteristics. The first one was legacy. And we, we see it in verse 2. It says, His offspring will be mighty in the land, and the generation of the upright will be blessed. And it refers to the impact that your life is going to have, that it isn't just like, like a sandcastle just blown away as soon as you're gone. The second characteristic that you see is prosperity. People want to prosper. There's not a one of you in this room that are praying or hoping that you don't prosper. We all want to prosper. That's common with every single one of us. And we see this second one in, in verse 3. It says, wealth and riches are in his house. Now, that refers to far more than your bank accounts. It refers to a, a, a kind of economic and relational and social abundance that crosses the whole spectrum of your life. And so it's first legacy and then second prosperity. And third, it's this remarkable capacity for wisdom. This would be the kind of person that if you lived near her, you would knock on her door every single time you came to something confusing. This, this is the person. Now, it says this in, in, in verse 4, that light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Now, what's really interesting is that the detention in that particular phrase is that you have darkness with dawn starting, coming. And it reminds you very conspicuously of what Solomon wrote in, in uh, Proverbs 14 and verse 18 and 19. It says, the way of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, growing brighter and brighter until the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness, he does not know over, which, over what he stumbles. That is this remarkable contrast, and it's captured in this clause that wisdom is like its light dawns in the darkness for the upright, and it's depicting the insight that God gives to his people when they're facing troubling or confusing circumstances in their life. So you have legacy, prosperity, wisdom, and fourth, confidence. We see this confidence in this clause that says, for the righteous will never be moved. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Now, that's describing the interior life of a person who trusts in the Lord when it's not easy to trust in the Lord. He's not given to worry or anxiety because he trusts in the Lord with the wholeness of his or her life. Therefore, when bad, bad news doesn't trouble him, it doesn't unsettle him because it's met with this firmness of faith inside of him. This is, this is a remarkable characteristic, maybe the one uh, that is the most favorite to me. And so you have, you have legacy, prosperity, wisdom, confidence, and then lastly, in, in verse 8, you find the steadfastness. Steadfastness. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Now, this describes a steadfast of heart when it comes to other people who challenge or deride him for his faith. He doesn't let it get knocked out of his hands, so to speak. Now, as I've said, kind of woven this throughout our time together today, what's interesting is that this kindness and generosity is just one amongst all of these things. And so what you're seeing is that kindness and righteousness is the byproduct of a healthy 
in vibrant faith. It's not the cause of it. And so when you try to manipulate yourself into, or worse, other people try to manipulate you, manipulate you into acts of kindness or generosity, that's not sustainable. But what is sustainable is this whole life is like a harvest that's coming up. It's like driving through Iowa. And it's like, um, it's, it's almost miraculous when you look across those, those stalks of corn and they grow like within a quarter of an inch of each other. It seems like they've been mowed from heaven. And what this is showing is that kindness and generosity is just merely a byproduct. It, it tells you something about what's going, going on deep inside of a person. Not on the outside. It tells you what's going on on the inside. Now, I, I, I tend to think that it's, that has to be one of the most interesting aspects of this. Now, I want to give you a little more contemporary research on kindness and generosity because I think this is going to kind of drive, drive home this point a little bit more, a little bit better. Now, there was a, a book recently released by Adam Phillips and Barbara Taylor. It was titled On Kindness. And it's very different than you might think. And those two authors, they explore some of the psychological research on kindness and generosity. And they offer this really, I think, helpful description of kindness. And it says this. Kindness is the original meaning of kinship or sameness has stretched over time to encompass sentiments that today go by a wide variety of names, sympathy, generosity, altruism, Benevolence, humanity, compassion, pity, empathy. The precise meaning of these words vary, but fundamentally they all denote what the Victorians called open-heartedness, the sympathetic expansiveness linking self to other. Now, this open-heartedness that they, they later identify as the objectionable objectionable aspect of kindness and generosity as well as a remarkable hindrance towards ever having them in your life. This is what they, they wrote. Today, is the, today it is only between parents and children that kindness is expected, sanctioned, and indeed obligatory. Kindness, that is the ability to bear the vulnerability of others and therefore of oneself, has become a sign of weakness, except, of course, among saintly people in whom it is a sign of their exceptionality. All compassion is self-pity, D.H. Lawrence remarked, and this usefully formulates the widespread modern suspicion of kindness that it is either a higher form of selfishness, the kind that is morally triumphant and secretly exploited, exploitative, exploitative, whatever, um, of the lower form of weakness. Kindness is the way the weak control the strong. The kind are only kind because they haven't got the guts to be anything else. If we think of humans as essentially competitive and therefore triumphalistic by inclination, as we are encouraged to do, then kindness looks distinctly old-fashioned. Indeed, nostalgic, a vestige from a time we, uh, when we could recognize ourselves in each other and feel sympathetic because of our kindness. And what, after all, can kindness help us win except moral approval or possibly not even that in a society where respect for personal status 
has become a leading value. In essence, their research indicates that our culture frowns upon kindness. Where we used to write songs and, and film movies and write theater about acts of generosity and kindness as almost heroic. It's now seen as a very strange form of selfishness for the, for the generous person to actually wield supremacy over those less fortunate. And it's actually utilized by the weak to manipula manipulate those who could benefit them. And it's strange that we've come to this. Now, going back to what I said earlier, I think that this is one of perhaps the most important point about Psalm 112, because its kindness and generosity don't appear in a vacuum. They're not simply things that you can make happen. No matter what your Christmas list looks like, it's something that is just like a window into who you are. Now, that's where the broader definition or description becomes so interesting because if, if we were merely assessed on our kindness and generosity by the gifts that people open, that we give them, I, I, I think that that would be a relatively simple landscape to present ourselves as kind and generous. But if that landscape really includes how we do business with one another, how we interact with the people that report to us at work, or the people that we report to. Are we really kind then? Is there kind of a generosity that emerges from a deep sense that God's justice in the world will one day restore all things, make them all new? Whose side are we really on? You see, that's, I think, one of the pointed aspects of this psalm. The fact that the psalmist places kindness and generosity alongside several other significant characteristics of legacy, prosperity, wisdom, confidence, and steadfastness is indeed significant because it demands that we give attention to how we're living across the whole spectrum of our lives, not merely the gifts that we'll give in the weeks to come. All right, let me take a couple of questions and we'll, we'll be done. If this psalm describes a life lived in obedience to God's law, and I'm not experiencing any of, of its characteristics, I think this person wrote a, a question the last time I was up here. Uh, it describes a life lived in obedience to God's law, and I'm not experiencing any of its characteristics. Am I to conclude that I'm not living in such obedience? Well, maybe. Maybe. Now, I saw a very interesting text, a tweet yesterday actually by David Bonson, who is a fairly good friend of mine, and he's become prominent in financial advisement circles. He, he appears on a lot of different uh, uh, syndicated shows in, in investment. But he retweeted something back, um, who's the smiley preacher in Houston? Osteen, Osteen. And Osteen, Osteen wrote something to the effect, your faith, your worship, and your obedience are inspiring the blessing of God. And he just tweeted back. He said, that's not quite ex exactly it, hombre. And it just made me laugh. <laughs> it just made me laugh. 
Now, I, I, I don't know that you can seriously read the Old Testament without sensing this, this relationship that God had with his people in the sense that he, he, he said, okay, you, you take what Moses wrote, for instance, to the Jews shortly before his death in Deuteronomy 28. Half of it, half of it is a psalm that said, do this and live. And the other, other half of it is a curse, do this and die. Now, I, I think some of this captures that. That there's a sense in which, as Christians, you have to be willing to say, I believe God really does attend the lives of his people. But the tension that you live under is you can't say that, okay, I can turn the gospel into a vending machine strategy. God owes me something if I do these things. It doesn't ever allow you to do that. And particularly when you come into the New Testament, under the definition of the New Covenant, there are a lot of commandments to obey. That's what annoys me sometimes when we, when we, we think about the Christian life as if it has no obligation to it. Peter didn't think like that. In 1 Peter 1, in verse 17, he says, Since you address his father, the one who impartially judges every man according to his deeds, past your sojourning on earth in fear. That is not let go and let God at all. Jesus didn't seem to think so either because he said that I'm the vine and you're the branches and if and my father's the husbandman and any branch that bears fruit, he's going to prune it until it bears more fruit or if it doesn't bear fruit, he's going to cut it off and cast it into the fire to be burned. That's a life with no good works of it. And so I don't think that you can reduce the gospel into this little sense that, okay, Jesus did everything for me, which is partly true. But now I have no obligation to obey. The Apostle John wrote in two verses, in 1 John 2 and verse 3 and 4, by this we know that we've come to truly know him. He's talking about Jesus. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. But the man who says I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments, now he's describing a person who claims to be a Christian, but he's not. He doesn't live that way. He said, the man who says, I've come to know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so there's a sense in which there's a very real tension in this question. Is it possible that you're living a life that has no obedience whatsoever, and one day you're going to stand before this judgment seat that Peter wrote about, and God's going to impartially judge you, and there's no evidence of faith in that life? Now, that's entirely possible. But it's also possible that God, in, in spite of this obedience and growing faith, this vital faith that you have, he's requiring these trials of affliction and adversity. Now, I believe that when he does that, in, in both Peter and James, in their first, first Peter 1 and James chapter 1, he said you, you, you need to consider it all joy when you come to these trials. Now, how do you do that? Because, again, this question is striking at the nerve of this. I believe that when God brings difficulty as a form of chastisement, which in Hebrews 12, I'm, I'm trying to be careful to quote everything from the New Testament, for those of you that might dismiss me if I quote too much Old Testament. But in Hebrews 12, he said that God disciplines every son that he receives. And if you're without discipline, of which we've all been made partakers, you're an illegitimate child. That means you're a bastard. You don't belong to God. And so if he doesn't take you to the woodshed every now and again to prove to you where you're wrong, there's something wrong. There's something that should be terrifying to you. And this is kind of cutting to this. 
I can't tell you. I don't know who wrote the question at all. I certainly didn't write it. Um, But maybe your life is being afflicted because God really cares about you. He cares too much to let you throw away the rest of your life by just straying away from him. And he's come after you because he loves you, not because he doesn't. Now, it's entirely possible that you've taken the whole thing in the Old Testament to say that, almost like Joel Olstein with that silly smile, that somehow you're not prospering because you haven't written, written a big enough check to the church. And that's terribly wrong. You see, we have to avoid the ditches on both sides. The Christian life is a life of intelligent intentionality, not a cavalier disregard of those things. All right, next question. I hope that was helpful. I'm glad that was the only one. I probably spent way too long on it. Um, All right, let's get ready for communion. Now, let me give you a brief description that I think is helpful for communion. Communion doesn't save anyone. It never has and it never will. It, but it, it's something that has always, even among the most brilliant theologians in all of church history, it's always had kind of a shroud of mystery around it. And the reason is the description of it is remarkable because it's, it's, it's an ordinance that God attends and he's present with us in. Now, oftentimes in our descriptions, we tell you that, okay, these are merely symbols, and the, the bread represents Jesus' broken body, and the wine represents his spilt blood. But when we do this publicly, we're actually telling people that, that, that that's who I am. My life is built upon this foundation of Jesus' dying, his death for me. And that's true. That's true, but that doesn't capture this mystery that he's here. When we take this, not only does it tell one another, to tell all of us that where we stand, but there's a special way in which he attends it. And I think this is the reason that Paul warned us so much about it. And he, he says, if you, if you don't examine yourself, you can bring condemnation on yourself. To the point that in the First Testament there was people dying. I've never known of a person dying. There's probably people who have choked on the bread. I don't know. But, uh, but Paul had known of some. But he's getting at this mystery. And he says when we examine ourselves properly, God doesn't have to. And that tells you about a clarity of conscience that lets us for a few moments reflect. And what I, I want you to spend... Just one minute, one minute of intense reflection on is this simple question. Am I a kind and generous man or woman? Would my children consider me kind and generous? Would my work associates consider me kind and generous? Would the people who live their yards touch my yard? Am I kind and generous there? Because this should be a very unusual season of kindness and generosity. And if you're not, maybe you need to start. And 
it's going to come from a depth of faith. I assure you. So let's pray. Father, I would ask that today in particular, at the very threshold of what we would consider the holiday season, when so many of us legitimately expect the kind acts and the generous acts and even the acts of goodwill that we would receive from the people who love us the most and even those that don't. We just expect people to be nice. I, I, I pray that this particular description that's broader than our normal perspective and this, the, how it's sustainable across the whole spectrum of our faith, I, I, help us to ponder that. A simple question, am I a kind and generous human being? I pray that you would help us to see that clearly in these moments. I pray that you would attend your people as they would partake of communion this morning, that they would sense that you, re you really are here. You're a part of our gathering. We commit these to you, for we ask and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.